In the 26th chapter of the book of Genesis, we read of um, Isaac uh, digging out the old wells uh, of his father Abram. And it's an often used picture uh, of the work and responsibility that is ours today and has very much been the theme of this day of conference. But I'll just read a few of these verses from 17, verse 17 of chapter 26 of Genesis. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. Well, we'll leave the reading there. But that will be the, the emphasis of this final message. Indeed, it's been the emphasis of the whole day. It's usually attributed to uh, Edmund uh, Burke, who's supposed to have said, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And there's very much of that uh, in our emphasis today as well. I, I'll begin by quoting a very famous church uh, historian, that's uh, Kenneth Scott Latourette. And he gave uh, a series of lectures in, back in 1948 now, and they were all eventually gathered together in a precious little book uh, that had the title, The Unquenchable Light. And the title itself is uh, very instructive. But in that book, he takes us back to the year 1500. And he describes the state of the Christian church at that period, 1500. And he says that then Christianity was mainly confined to the continent of Europe. It hadn't been mainly confined to the continent of Europe before then, but at that point it was. And he also says that it was represented by a static and dwindling remnants of churches. Remind you of the date again, 1500. Dwindling, static remnants of churches, encircled, he said, and being slowly stifled by a politically dominant Islam. And we know the power of Islam at that time was uh, ever increasing. You know, Constantinople had been sacked in uh, 1453, a great medieval Christian city. And uh, he also cast his glance over the rest of the world and said uh, what had been the Christian church in South India was at that time almost totally overrun by the prevailing Hinduism. And he went with his eye further, even into China, and was saying that China at that time was one of the most powerful nations in the world uh, and of course that was uh, under the sway of Confucianism and so he went on painting this picture very gloomy picture and said finished said all loomed all the world loomed larger in the human affairs in human affairs than did Christianity Christianity and with it Jesus Christ seemed to be a waning force in the world and its days appeared to be numbered. Remember the date, 
hundreds. Now, that struck me as giving us a very relevant uh, and historically proven uh, lesson for us today. It was very bleak then. And there were a remnant of people, certainly here in Britain, that were holding on, still had the true faith. And in those days, the Lollards were about. And then you start to think about William Tyndale and his work, and you start to think, what a role that little, apparently dwindling remnant plays. So it's encouragement for us in our day. And then also by way of introduction, we remember the principle of Scripture. Again, it's been emphasized throughout the day. There are, all the way through Scripture, evidences of God's reviving his work. The work revives. Things go on very well. The people forget God. They depart from his precepts. God brings upon them just judgments and chastisements. And then grace and mercy triumph over wrath and God uh, comes again. You read in the Old Testament, revival under Samuel, revival under Asher, and revival under Elijah, and revival under Jonah, and the same in the New... Well, I'm just giving you a sample of the Old Testament. I haven't got time to give you any more. But in the New Testament, revival under John the Baptist, revival under at the time of Pentecost, and uh, beside revivals, times of great success, as in Samaria and Caesarea and Antioch. So there is a pattern in the workings of God. And we've seen very much that pattern today. One thing we must not let get into our minds is that things are inevitably declining. Now, you may know that poem. It's a very dismal, probably as far as our Christian faith is concerned, one of the most dismal poems that was ever written. You may know it by Matthew Arnold. It's called The Sea of Faith. I read it to you. The Sea of Faith was once true at the full and round earth's shores lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear the melancholy long withdrawing roar repeating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges near and naked shingles of the shore how dismal I know it's true in some ways what we look at now the sea of faith ever going further out the tide ebbing day after day things getting worse and worse but that's not how the pattern of history, that's not how scripture has revealed, it goes out. But Mr. Wesley once said this, and when there is least appearance, suddenly we see the day of his power. And we cling on to that and we don't listen to the people of gloom and doom who say it's all going worse and worse forever. It is bad. We are highlighting that today. We face up to it. There's a great work to do. But there is a great God who is on our sides. So we see that at the beginning. Now, 
some of the principles we learn from these great times of revival. And the first one is this, the principle of return. In the Bible, it's, that word is repentance. But I'm going to use the word return for now. Because, as has also been emphasized in the last lecture and all the others, it's clear, it's very clear, that the problems that we face today are not new. They have been around before. And you see, we think, we tended to think, because we're all influenced by our surroundings, by the prevailing philosophers, false philosophers of the day. We're all influenced by them, we don't realize. But we tend to think that any kind of return to what was before is inevitably a retrograde step. We've all been influenced, especially the young, but even as they were older, by the philosophy of Darwinianism. You know it better than I know it myself. But everything starts off in this primitive and primeval sort of a way, and then it all gradually, inevitably, gets better and better and more sophisticated and more wonderful and more breathtaking all the time. And we then deduce from that, well, to go, to go backwards... That would be a terrible thing to do. It would be foolish. It would be madness to think of going backwards. Now, just think if we did away with these uh, electric lights here and we all went back to rush lights. Nobody would do that, would they? Candles and oil lamps and gas brackets and all that. That would definitely be retrograde. There are some things. There are many things that are improving. We've acknowledged that today in the world of science and medicine and so on. Think, of course, we build on giant shoulders and we go forward. But that is not true of everything. Again, it's been emphasized today. Has God changed since the days of Abram and Isaac? No. no. Has man changed since the days of Abraham and Isaac? Not, not really. Well, fundamentally, <laughs> I mean, he, he wears different clothes and all sorts of things. He was, I don't think Abraham wore spectacles, but he hasn't changed in the fundamental way. Has sin changed? Different sort of sins in some ways, but really not, no. Man is still a sinner. And has the gospel changed? No, no, it hasn't. And therefore, in the subject, in the area, in this wonderful area we're thinking of today, it is not foolish. In the moral world, in the spiritual world, it is not foolish to ask, how were things before the Philistines filled up the wells? How was it before the Philistines came and destroyed our society? How was it before the Philistines came and polluted our doctrines and spoiled our churches? It is not foolish to think in those terms. Now, before we go on to the 18th century, let us see another similarity between now 
and going back to 1500 and that period again. Because at that time, there was a prevailing, all prevailing, all embracing, it was everywhere, influencing the thinking of all the people. And what was it? The Roman Church. The Roman Church. It interfered with the lives of people from the cradle to the grave. It was everywhere. You couldn't do anything without it. It was all pervasive. Nobody could possibly have got past such an all-prevailing outlook, could they? But they didn't. And today, we have an all-prevailing outlook. What do you call it? Secularism, modernism, various other names you could call it, but we know what we mean. Whenever you read the paper, you're inhaling, you're being influenced by it. Whenever you turn on the radio, you're being influenced by it. If you have a television and you turn that on, you're being influenced by it. If you go to school, you're being influenced by it. Wherever you go, it's there. It's everywhere. It's a sort of an interlocking, closely woven system of thinking that it's almost impossible to break out of. But they did it at the Reformation. They did it in the 18th century. And how did they break out of it? Well, they opened this book. They opened this book. And it directed their thoughts into a completely different channel. A different way of looking at themselves, life and every other thing. It was light in the darkness. And today, the only way out of the darkness that has enveloped us and the false thinking and the muddled thinking and the downright evil thinking of the age, wrong thinking, is to open up again the word of the living gods. And all through all the revivals, from the ones in the Bible to the ones of history, and all the ones that will ever be, it will come about when men start to turn again to the word of God. Let us go to the 18th century in the time we have. Well, we move to the 18th century. We know it was a violent age in many respects, a cruel, corrupt, rough sort of an age in many areas. There were its refinements, we know. But we just heard a few moments ago the 18th century revival tamed the Englishman. I think that's what Mr. Carr, something like that anyway. This excellent message. You may already know these descriptions, but I'll repeat them again. They're well worn, but if I give myself three minutes to re, re go over them. Bishop Butler's famous analysis of those times. They were the, this house described it his day. It has come, I know not how, to be taken for granted by many persons that Christianity is not so much a subject of inquiry, but that it is now at length discovered to be fictitious. And accordingly they treat it as if in the present age this were an agreed point among all people of discernment, and nothing remained but to set it up as a principal subject of mirth and ridicule, as it were, by way of reprisals for its having so long interrupted the pleasures of the world. 
He could have written that this morning, could he not? Absolutely, same thing that's happening today. You know those Hogarth can uh, cartoons? Gin uh, Lane, drunkenness and debauchery all around. Beer Street, I think the other one was called, a companion. Fancy having those hanging on your wall. And if you look at the Gin Lane one, you, you come across that other famous description of the 18th century life. If you look carefully at that uh, cartoon, you'll see the cellar with those famous words written over the doorway. Drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, clean straw for nothing. In other words, the straw was to go to, you know, obliterate on uh, after you drunk yourself, uh, silly with gin. They also, uh, one more, uh, it was said that the, the parliament, in the parliament of that day, there was scarcely any, any member that owned himself uh, as a Christian. Um, the, the actual quote is that of the prominent statesmen of the time, the greater part were unbelievers in any form of Christianity and distinguished themselves by the grossness and immorality of their lives, etc., etc. It's all right up to date. Anyway, what was done at the Reformation? What was done in the 18th century and every other revival? They dug out the old wells. Now, what are these? What did they dig out? What did they remove? What was the rubbish? The Philistines had filled them up with. Well, various truths. I got most of these off Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Not that I asked him, but I'm sure he let me have them. But anyway, these are the points. The first one is this. They dug out all the rubbish that had been piled in, turning our thoughts away from the concepts of the transcendence of God's. The almightiness of God, if you like. The glorious sovereignty of the living God. How many churches do you go into today? Or how many places do you go to today where men reverence God, hold his name in honour, who delights in God? who are overwhelmed and speak quietly when they speak in terms of the living gods. You know, when we begin our services, why do we worship? Why do we come to chapel? So that we may worship the living gods. The primary element in our services of worship is the recognition of, the acknowledgement of, glory, the majesty, the transcendence of our gods. That's the first and foremost thing. We begin, we begin there. A right view of gods is essential for a right view of everything. Today, some of the modern theologians talk a lot about the imminence of gods. There is a sense in which God is imminent. That means God is near. And it's a wonderful thing to know that God is near. But many of the modern theologians, when they talk about the imminence of God, they get very close to pantheism. You know, these 
people who say God's in that tree and God's in this piece of wood and God's in this piece of plastic here and God, God's everywhere. It's a very vague and strange sort of teaching, really. But if you believe in that sort of idea, you don't believe in the God who is sovereign and the God who intervenes. This is the thing. The Bible teaches us that God intervenes. God has more than an interest in this world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to save it. We believe in an intervening God whom we pray for, pray to. And we ask him to come and intervene in this dark situation we're in. But we begin by acknowledging God. In the, in the 18th century that we're talking about for a minute now, there were the deists. Deists. Handel's Messiah, or the words of it, were put together to counter the deists. But the deists believed, oh, there's a God up there, yes. That he's so far away. He, he, he made the world, but then he's lost interest in it and gone on to another project. He's not really concerned about this world now. But that's no good of an idea of God, is it? We believe in a God who is transcendent, a God who is near, and a God who intervenes. That's why we believe in miracles, you know. But when we believe in that sort of a God, as the Bible shows us, we never despair, you know. Nil disperandum auspice Deo, or auspice Deo, you could say. He means this, never despair while God reigns. Never despair while God reigns. We have a right view of God. Secondly, we have a right view, all this has been said today, but we have a right view of the Holy Scriptures, or better still, the Word of God. Have not the Philistines taken the Word of God from us? All these old men here, like me as well, reminiscing, when I was at school, the first hour of the day was given to private reading of God's Word. It was a church school, and you'd expect that. But we did, they just gave the Bibles out and said, read them. That was easy for the teacher, I suppose. But it was acknowledged. That's vitally important. Now, I don't know whether you've ever heard of Dr. Robert G. Bratcher. He sounds like an American, and he certainly was. And apparently, he was one of the translators of the Bible version, Good News for Modern Men. That's a good title, because the Bible is good news for modern man or any other kind of a man. But you'd be shocked to know this is what he thought about the Bible he was involved in translating and which many people read. He said this, Only willful ignorance or intellectual dishonesty can account for the claim that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. That's the first thing he said. No truth-loving, God-respecting, Christ-honoring believer should be guilty of such heresy. To invest the Bible with qualities of inerrancy and infallibility is to idolatrize it and transform it into a false god. He goes worse. No one can seriously claim that all the words of the Bible are the words of God. Quoting what the Bible says in the context of history and culture is not necessarily relevant or helpful and may be a hindrance in trying to meet and solve the problems we face. I don't know why he bothered translating the Bible at all, if he thought that. We don't believe the Bible is like that, do we? We have the right view of God and we have a right view of Scripture. Listen to John Wesley again. If there be any mistakes in the Bible, 
there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. If there be one falsehood in that book, it didn't come from the God of truth. A right view of Scripture, if we have a good, right admiration and confidence in Scripture as the Word of God, we will say the principles of this book, the teachings of this book are right. And what is being fed to me day by day, constantly, 99% of it's wrong, as it were. You see what I mean? Third vital element, digging out these wells, is this. The doctrine that man is a sinner and exposed to the wrath of God. Now that has been well spoken of today. Some years ago, a preacher, I think, I'm not absolutely sure I'm blaming the right man, but I think it was Dr. Leslie Weatherhead, whom many of us who are older will have heard of. He said this. He didn't believe in the God of the Old Testament who sat on the top of Mount Sinai shouting out his wrath and his condemnation. He didn't believe in the God who sat on the top of Mount Sinai shouting out his wrath and condemnation. Well, do you believe in such a God? Do I believe in it? Not really. It's a caricature of God. It's a caricature of God's holiness. It's a caricature of sin and the nature of God. But we do believe that man is a sinner. And we do believe that the wrath of God is exercised against that sinner. Paul knew it. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, O wretched man that I am. Unless we face up to the fact that man is a sinner and that he is wretched and so on, we've got no gospel. We've got no remedy. We might as well go home. We might as well adopt the social gospel. I quote to you a, a man who is generally regarded as a heretic. Sometimes when heretics say something good, you, you, you sit up and listen. Emil Brunner, I would normally quote him. But he has a book called The Mediator. And in it, there are one or two things that make you think. He said this. I wouldn't normally quote him, but I'll say it in this context. So long as we continue to reject the scriptural ideas of the divine holiness and the divine wrath and the divine righteousness and punishment, the process of decay within the Christian church will continue. Blunt as that. Face up to this reality. Now, a tremendous lot can be said about that, but I've only got a few minutes. What about the person moving on? The person of our Saviour Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. I could sum all this up in one hymn. What think ye of Christ is the test. Do you know that hymn? To try both your scheme and your plan. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you in mercy, or rather, and mercy, nor wrath, is your Lord. You have to have a right view of Jesus. He is the divine Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. 
He is the only saviour of sinners. He is God and he is man. And his blood, that is, his sacrifice and his shed blood, makes the foulest clean. You know, at the time of the 18th century revival, they had that most clear. Some of the loveliest hymns on the person of Christ that have ever been written are the first possession of the Methodists. I'm in a Methodist chapel. I'll play to the gallery. They are. And if you take out uh, Wesley's hymn book, and I've only got the 1876 version, but the first part is more or less all his. I looked up the first 40 hymns. I didn't have time to look up the rest. But I looked up the first 40 hymns, and 20 out of the 40 had an emphasis on the blood of the Lamb, which taketh away the sins of the world. You could probably do that with any other hymn book of that time as well, any other sound hymn book. So, the person of Jesus Christ. And then, again, hurriedly, and our two sessions have begun with this prayer today, if you remember them. It is the needs, and an emphasis on the need, of the power of the Holy Spirit in everything we do. We sometimes forget that going back to the Reformation, that was one of the great emphases, you know. When Calvin and others started to speak of the depravity of man and man's inability to contribute anything towards his salvation, to even take a step towards God, you immediately needed to think about the work of the Holy Spirit, you see. And when Calvin and others, other great reformers, of course, started to bring the, that generation back to the word of God, there had to be an emphasis upon the facts that this word is God breathed, as it were, by his spirit. And it is this word that is interpreted, not by the priest or by the pope or anybody else, principally, but by the Holy Spirit. They knew it in the 18th century. Come, divine interpreter, give us eyes, thy book to read. And so there is the emphasis on that. And you know, when the, at the time of the Reformation, they, their eyes were open to see that the church is not some human organization dominated by men and a hierarchical system and all the rest of it, a great man-made mechanism. But the church of God is that where the Holy Spirit is a living power and a living energy and strength. The Spirit that mediates the presence of Christ and so on. The need for the Holy Spirit was seen very clearly. One writer said, whenever Christianity is a living power, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has, uh, has uniformly been regarded equally with the atonement and justification by faith as the article of a standing or falling church. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Time fails me to speak about the instrumentality of preaching, absolutely central in all these things. And so you could go on. This digging out the wells, 
is what we need to do today. It's what your generation particularly needs to get busy doing. There are other points I could have raised. But just to tie it all together, there's a very interesting story about when Calvin went to Geneva, you know, just as when Wesley came to England. I know he was already in England. But when, uh, when Calvin first went to Geneva, you know, the city council decided, before he went there, uh, that they would uh, no longer be Roman Catholics, they would be Protestants. Just like that. Decision of the council. They didn't really know perhaps what they were doing, I don't know. But they invited this young fellow, Calvin, to come and be their preacher. When he got to the city, the city was described as notorious for its riots, gambling, indecent dancing, drunkenness, adultery and other vices, people running around the streets naked, singing indecent songs and blaspheming God, etc., etc. And he preached every single day the word of God. And in the end, they threw him out because they didn't like it. And he went off to Strasbourg for about three years where he was very happy. And then in the end, they called him back to Geneva. They were in despair. They called him back, sort of a last-ditch thing. He said he would rather, rather have died a hundred deaths than go back. It was so bad. But he went by the grace of God. He took up the Bible expositions. He was preaching right through the Bible and he took up where he'd left off three years or so before. As if to say, I'm not changing. I'm going back to the wells. I'm digging these wells out. So what you Philistines do? That's the sort of attitude you need to have. And so what happens to it? Anyway, to cut a long story short, eventually, the power of the word of God began to prevail. It's not easy to dig out wells. It's not easy to stick to the old paths. It's not easy to preach where nobody listens. But we must do it. And then, eventually, the spirit of God fell and the city was changed. One of the first improvements was this. They mended the drains. The city not only was corrupt, but it stank. Calvin never mentioned the dreads. He never said anything about them as far as we can read in any of his writings. But by the power of the preached word, the gospel, all these other things started to fall into place. And that's exactly what our brother Carson was saying a few moments ago. We've got to get our priorities right. There is a hymn that some people criticise, but... I think it's a good hymn, and I was going to end with it, but I can't see it on my notes. But I'll remember it, I think. It's something, it's something along these lines. The hymn is, To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, or let me all my powers engage, to do my master's will. If we're digging these wells out by the grace of God, we can't do anything better to serve the present age than to do that. Can't do anything better to fulfill our calling than to do that. We can't do anything better to serve our master's will than to do these things, which have been the theme of this wonderful conference uh, here today. God bless each one.